from starting off in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7. But we have this treasure, and Paul's actually talking about the gospel. So it's the treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being, giving o- always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. For death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but things that are unseen are eternal. And then moving to uh, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Now, you as a church have been working your way through this letter to Timothy. That's right, Martin spoke here last week, didn't he, Uh, on 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses up to about verse 12, I think. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in, in, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So, so Paul's, Paul's second letter to 
Paul's second letter to Timothy is a very personal letter. What I mean is he mentions lots of people. Uh, besides Paul and Timothy, 24 other people are mentioned. And three of them are here. Phygelus, Hermogenes and Onesiphorus. Now, people like to go to the Bible for their names, don't they? And I have a grandson named Zephaniah, great name. But I'm so glad that Chris and Amy didn't go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 for their names. I hope you're not planning to go to <laughs> go here for the future. You know, Phygelus or Hermogenes or Onesiphorus. Might, they're, they're a bit of a mouthful. But... But why does Paul mention so many names in this letter? Well, it seems that it's because he knows that things are really hard for Timothy. Um, we find out from, chapter, from verse 15 that there has been a widespread turning away in Asia, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Asia. Asia, it's not the Asia that we think of today. Asia is the Roman province of Asia, capital city, Ephesus. Timothy is a pastor in the church in Ephesus. So this is happening in, in Timothy's backyard. Things have become difficult. There's been a widespread turning away. And Paul, you know, Paul's writing about stuff that Timothy knows about. Uh, verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Verse 18, you know well all the service he rendered. So Paul is writing to Timothy whose situation is getting really hard. Life is tough as a pastor in Ephesus. But not only are things getting difficult for Timothy, things are also difficult for Paul. Things have seen, uh, it seems that his circumstances have changed for the worse. Um, we shouldn't think of Paul as we read about him at the end of the book of Acts, you know, um, in, under house arrest, but easy to find, easy to interact with. No, we discover that Paul is no longer in that situation. Now he is in a dark, deep, dungeon somewhere in Rome, somewhere difficult to find. I read a picture of uh, what these dungeons were like, and let me just read some, some, some words here. Uh, the prisons in Rome were squalid and physically dangerous, and delays in court procedures meant they were usually overcrowded, way beyond their capacity, unheated. Sleep was almost impossible on the rough pallets or the floor with no bedding provided. Food beyond a meagre prison ration was the responsibility of the prisoner. But how could, how could Paul, stuck in a prison in Rome, how could he uh, provide for his own food? Lack of access to water meant that the prisoners were not just filthy, but frequently unrecognisable from the caked-on dirt and matted beard and hair. The prisons were airless and unhygienic because they were mostly windowless. 
so dark as well. <coughs> Onesiphorus was searching for an unrecognisable Paul amongst thousands of similar-looking wretches throughout the prisons in Rome in the pitch dark. No wonder Paul says that he, he had to strive to find him. It's a heroic labour of love for Onesiphorus to even find Paul. The greatest gospel warrior there has ever been, Paul, is lonely, cold and suffering. We learn from chapter 4 that he feels as if he's being poured out like a drink offering. He feels as though the time of his departure has come. But even though he's suffering, Paul, Paul is not ashamed. He affirms in verse 12 that I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's not ashamed. And his commendation of Onesiphorus is, he was not ashamed of my chains. How could Paul remain so upbeat? In, in, that, in that situation of tremendous degradation and suffering, how could he affirm these things? The only thing that makes it possible for someone in that situation to be positive in the face of death is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and knowing who you are in, in, in connection with him is the only possible way that, that someone in this situation can look ahead with hope and joy. Huh. Here, here, comes, here comes the joy of my life. Uh, so, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. He's most likely a prisoner of Nero, the, the mad Roman emperor. You've probably heard of Nero. Paul does not describe himself as a prisoner of Nero at all. Look at how he describes himself. Verse 8. Uh, verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. See how Paul describes himself? His prisoner, that is, the Lord's prisoner. Don't be ashamed of my imprisonment, Timothy. I am the Lord's prisoner. Paul uses really different words to describe himself in verse 11. He says he's a preacher, an apostle and a teacher. This is a really high calling, isn't it? Preacher, apostle, teacher. Let's see how he goes on. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul is a prisoner in a rank dungeon in Rome. Would Paul wish to escape his prisoner status? Do you reckon? Most likely. <laughs> but actually, no. For Paul's, in Paul's particular historical circumstances, the only way that he could lose his prisoner status is to lose his status 
as a preacher, apostle and teacher. For Paul, at this particular point in time, the two necessarily go together. He is not Nero's prisoner. He is the Lord's prisoner. And he is unwilling to lose his status as a prisoner. If he did, the cost, well, the cost would be too great. He could only gain his freedom by denying the Lord and denying the gospel. The price is way too high to pay. Now, your particular circumstances here in Geelong and and my particular historical circumstances are very different. But the principle that Paul, you know, the, the sense of priority that Paul communicates here applies to us in the same way. There is nothing it would be worth gaining if it meant losing the gospel, if it meant losing the Lord. We would be willing to lose everything rather than lose the gospel or lose the Lord. When it comes down to it, there's actually nothing more important than guarding the gospel so that we can know the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can love him and passionately passionately pursue him. Well, as I mentioned, Paul feels about Paul feels as if he's going to die and so he's passing on the baton of guarding the gospel to the next generation, people like Timothy. And he urges Timothy not to be ashamed. But what is it that Timothy is not to be ashamed of doing? Well, Paul has two commands in verses 13 and 14. he's, He's talking about guarding the gospel. In verse 13, the gospel is called the pattern of sound words. And in verse 14, it's called the good deposit. Timothy must follow the pattern of sound words and he must guard the good deposit entrusted to him. The first task, following the pattern, must be done in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The second task, guarding the gospel, guarding the good deposit, can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what Paul says to Timothy in this letter, God is saying to Timothy. What God is saying to Timothy, God is saying to us. Our historical circumstances are very different. But the principles remain. The principles can be applied to us. And so... Let's look at these two commands. The the, the first aspect of guarding the gospel is to follow the pattern of sound words. What does Paul mean? He doesn't mean a kind of a a, a cookie-cutter approach where everything's always the same. The cookie always turns out the same as the assembly line goes along. We don't need to remember some particular words by rote memory and so that when we can conform to a particular mode of expression, then we're able to follow the the pattern of sound words. He doesn't mean that. People are going to express themselves differently. Paul, I imagine Paul would have been uh, would have been forceful, strong. Timothy, 
Well, we don't really know what Timothy's personality was like, but maybe he might have been a bit more gentle, uh, a bit... A bit, a bit um, uh, people say that he was timid. I don't know if he was that timid, actually. You know, Paul sends him to Ephesus. Paul, Paul really trusts Timothy. But maybe, maybe there's some indication that he's a bit timid. People are going to express things in different ways. The important thing is that the truth is powerful. When you're talking to someone about your faith, whether that person that you're talking to knows nothing at all or is an advanced Bible scholar, don't worry. You don't need to know all the answers. The power is not in your answers. The power is in the pattern of sound words. The power is in the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and learn more and more about the Bible and about theology. Of course we should. But, but, but this is the point that Paul is making. The truth of the gospel is what is important. It's the truth of the gospel that the Holy Spirit takes and, and changes, changes us and changes people we're talking to. The truth is for everyone. And because it's the powerful word of God, so we must keep it and use it in our conversations. But notice, notice that verse 13 says that we must keep the pattern of sound words in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So how we hold the truth is just as important as the content of the truth. Our faith must focus on Jesus. Our actions and our words must be characterised by the love that flows from Jesus so that we can speak the truth in love. It's great to have all your facts in a row. It's great to be able to defend the truth to be able to have arguments ready for people who might disagree with parts of the truth. But I reckon that having all your facts in a row is actually only a really small part of the way that you present the gospel. A small part of your witness and conversation with others. Francis Schaeffer once... well. I don't know if you both have heard of Francis Schaeffer. You might be too young, but he was a big name in, my, in, in, my, in our era, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had an hour with someone, he would spend the first 55 minutes getting to know the person, asking questions, building a relationship, and the last five minutes speaking the gospel. It's possible to have all the Christian arguments in your head and to then represent the faith in a way that's ugly, that makes the Christian faith seem ugly. It becomes all about having your facts, winning the argument, not winning the person. If we focus on winning the argument, 
without the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, people are going to be turned away. The way that we relate to people, the way that we speak is usually just as important as the things we say. And I find this super encouraging. Um, I, I, I need to speak the truth in my conversations with people, but just as important is to show the love of Jesus in the way that I relate to other people. Again, it means I don't have to worry that I've got all my facts right, my, all my answers. The, the power is not in the answers. The power is in the truth and the Holy Spirit using that truth in our lives, in the lives of others, to work faith in Jesus and, and, and to express the love of Jesus in the way that we communicate. So here's Timothy's first task, to, to follow the pattern of sound words in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now the second task is found in verse 14. Uh, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now here we need to pay attention to a couple of words. Uh, the word is guard. The two words are guard and deposit. And these two words are actually found in verse 12 as well. Um, now there's a slightly different translation here. But the words in verse 12, what has been entrusted to me, are a translation of that word deposit. Paul is not ashamed because he knows the one he has believed in and is convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to him. Paul, Paul knows that God will guard the deposit that's been entrusted to him. Why? Because he knows Jesus. He knows that Jesus is not going to let go. He's not going to give it over to Paul and then just leave Paul off for himself. And now Paul urges Timothy to guard the good deposit. Man, that seems like a tough ask. Look where, look, look what's happened to Paul. Paul's ended up in jail. Now Paul wants Timothy to do the same thing. It's a pretty tough ask. It seems like a poison chalice, to, a poison cup to me. But actually, it's not a grim responsibility at all, for God does not let go of the good deposit. See how Paul speaks in verse 12. God will guard the deposit until that day. Yes, God commits the gospel to us who are weak and fallible creatures. We have, we, we have the good deposit in jars of clay, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Why does God do that? Wouldn't it be more efficient actually to... Um, Give the good deposit to the smart, the wise, the intelligent, the, those who can, can speak really well or, or who can argue well. Well, God commits the gospel to fallible, weak human beings like us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We are like cracked pots not cracked pots, cracked pots that easily break. And, but the gospel that we contain is a glorious treasure, a shining treasure, and God is the one who is at work. 
Again, it's this massive encouragement. God has not committed the gospel to us and then taken his hands off it. Far from it. He is at work, making sure the gospel achieves the purpose for which he sent it. He's committed to guaranteeing that the gospel will do all the work that he has designed for it to do. His word will not return to him empty, but will achieve all he has purposed for it. He's not let go of it. He holds it. And he holds us. He holds the gospel. He holds us so that we might work together with him. And Paul says that he is persuaded that God will guard what he has entrusted to that day. And so naturally, because God is the one who is active, so Paul says he must guard the good deposit entrusted to us by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. There's only one possible way for the gospel to succeed in our lives and in the lives of others. One possible way. And that is to commit that work to the Holy Spirit. To pray that the active work of the Holy Spirit might change us and change others. So, Paul has outlined these two tasks. Um, uh, Guard the good deposit, uh, sorry, follow the pattern of sound words in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus and guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And then he comes to these names, Phagellus and Hermogenes on one side and Onesiphorus on the other. Phagellus and Hermogenes, they've become ashamed and they've left Paul. Onesimus, uh, Onesiphorus, very similar sounding name, and I read Onesimus today in Philemon, so that's why I'm confused. Onesiphorus, um, uh, he, he, he was not ashamed, just the opposite. He searched for Paul diligently until he found him in this deep, dark dungeon. Now, it's, it's just, like, just like biblical names, it's actually pretty dangerous to take your example from biblical characters. Um, young guys like to be like Samson, but there's plenty of holes in Samson's story if you read it. However, these guys are meant to be examples. Paul uses them as examples. Timothy, don't be like Phygelus and Homogenes. Rather, be like Onesiphorus. And so I think Onesiphorus is an example to us as well. What can we learn from Onesiphorus? Well, let me just outline two things. First of all, faithfulness to the Lord often means going against the general trend. Most people in Asia had turned away from Paul. But Paul is stoked that Onesiphorus has resisted the rush and stayed faithful to Paul. Sometimes being faithful to the Lord means being uncomfortably different. Is there an area in your life where you might need to stand out from the crowd at this time? I think it's really helpful to take a wider view. 
how will it look to God for you to just follow the crowd? Or, or maybe, how will it look to you five years from now if you just follow the crowd for your own convenience at this point? What are you going to think about that five year, in five years' time? Is, is it worth the, 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 the little bit of comfort you'll achieve now at the expense of that long-term obedience to God? If God really is the one who's at work, and that's what Paul has said, isn't it a bit foolish to work against God? If he's the one at work, shouldn't we be working with him, in fact? Being willing to stand out from the crowd is part of what it means to be not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. There's a second thing that we can learn from Onesiphorus. That is that serving, serving, Christ, serving Christ's servants is serving Christ. Paul plainly regards Onesiphorus as someone who has served the Lord. Twice over, Paul asks that Onesiphorus and his household might receive mercy from the Lord, just as Onesiphorus was showed mercy to Paul by finding him in his deep, dark dungeon. So may the Lord show mercy to Onesiphorus and his household. O oh Lord, bless Onesiphorus as a, as a reward for his service. But notice that Onesiphorus is just serving Paul during his time in prison. In serving Paul, Onesiphorus is serving the Lord. We can serve the Lord by serving others. And I think sometimes we fail to make that connection. We, 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 think, about, uh, we think about having a ministry. What, what's my ministry? What ministry can I have? What, what ministry can I have that other people will notice that I'm serving the Lord? We look for a prominent way to have a ministry. And sometimes it's just going to be serving the Lord's people. Onesiphorus is a great example, but of course the Lord Jesus himself is the greatest example. Mark chapter 10 Whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Was Onesiphorus serving the Lord or was he serving Paul? Well, of course he was serving both, wasn't he? He served the Lord by serving Paul. If you are, looking, if you are genuinely looking for a way to serve the Lord, Think about how you can serve the Lord's people. So, guard the gospel. Why? Because it is God's powerful instrument to change the world and he will guarantee its success. Guard the gospel. Why? Because there are going to be people like Phygelus and Hermogenes who are going to abandon it. Guard the gospel. How? In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the gospel. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit.
guard the gospel. How? By being unashamed and by serving God through serving his people. Let's come to God in prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, how, how amazing it is that you will guard what you have entrusted to us for that day, that your word will achieve the purpose for which you have sent it. How encouraging it is that you have called us to be your fellow workers as your word and your gospel achieve their purpose. And, and these, these big picture things are, are, are super encouraging but we confess that in, in the nitty gritty of everyday life we're often tempted to draw back. We're, we're tempted to act as if we're ashamed to, to balk at what you see as at what we see as the hard things you call us to do. So we pray that we might take the long-term picture. Help us not to avoid what might seem like short-term pain. Help us to rather trust in the power of your word and the work of your spirit in us and others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.